Hi, it's Bob from Royal Spa. Soaking in a hot tub full of Epsom salts is the absolute best way to minimize everyday aches and pains. And we know all about Epsom salts at Royal Spa. Royal Spa hot tubs are the only hot tubs on the market that can safely and effectively use Epsom salts. Made right here in Indiana, Royal Spa hot tubs are the highest quality hot tubs on the market. Visit any one of our three Indianapolis locations or visit royalspa.com. Ah, Royal Spa. Later tonight, it will be Purdue and the Volunteers of Tennessee. After Purdue last night, dispatching of the Gonzaga Bulldogs with a 10-point win, 73-63. That Tennessee game, by the way, Ryan Klein just hit another three. I think any time you talk about – as a matter of fact, Admiral Schofield was got in garbage time minutes for the Orlando Magic on Sunday, and I look and I go, man, that guy looks familiar. And I'm, oh, my gosh, that's Admiral Schofield, the guy from Tennessee that was the focus of that NCAA tournament – some great games, that great game between Purdue and Tennessee, but they're going to reconvene that rivalry, if you want to call it that, tonight at 8 o'clock. But joining us now to talk about what the Boilers did yesterday, Alan Karpik is, of course, with the On3 Network, goldenblack.com, where you know his work. And, Alan, I'll begin with this. Kind of a tale of two halves for the Boilers, where they dug down in the second half and really kind of asserted themselves against Gonzaga. What things did they do differently in half number two versus when they got off to the slower start against the Zags? Well, I think, and Matt Painter said it post-game last night, you know, the Zags missed shots. I mean, that's as simple as that. And I know Purdue fans sometimes get tired of hearing that about Purdue's failure in the NCAA tournament last the last couple of years. They just can't make shots. That was a little bit of that. I thought Lance Jones was just the difference maker. I think Purdue sped the game up a little bit. Uh, which is something they can do with Lance Jones, and uh, and and all of a sudden that game turned for Purdue. But you know, it really came down to yes, Purdue did some good things defensively, but uh, uh, Gonzaga also, you know, while they hit some threes in the first half, or they hit what six of them, I think, in the first half, uh, they just uh, could not uh, buy one in the second half and allowed Purdue to to run past them. Hey, Alan, it's Brendan. I know this was a year ago, but still, it's back-to-back wins and back-to-back years by double digits over Gonzaga and what that program is to the West Coast. So what does that just say about the Boilers and what they've been able to do in the non-conference the last few years? Well, it's really impressive. I mean, gosh, they haven't lost a non-conference game, what, in three years since they lost uh, lost uh, to Miami. This is a uh, – it is impressive. And, I, and, and, you know, I understand it's November, and I understand it's not March, but uh, you can't minimize. you got to play the games when you play them, and Purdue has played very well. Uh, if you think about their meteoric meteoric rise last year to number one when they weren't even ranked, right, before the season or where they were at the very bottom of the rankings. And, of course, two years ago with Jaden Ivey, they did the same thing. They didn't have to rise as far, but they got to number one. Uh, you know, if you look at the six, now seven teams they've played in these quote-unquote Thanksgiving feast week type tournaments, it's a pretty impressive murderer's role of college basketball, and Purdue has at least for now navigated it. Now, if they get two more, uh, it'll be really impressive because tonight against Tennessee and then potentially uh, it doesn't matter who they play. Uh, actually, Wednesday night, Marquette or, or Kansas are going to be tremendous uh, struggles for <coughs> excuse me for any team, especially Purdue. Alan, I look at Fletch and, uh, Fletcher Lawyer, okay? He doesn't hit a shot yesterday. He goes 0 for 6, 0 for 3 from three-point range. Gets a couple free throws, leaves with two points. I think there are a lot of people that would look at that and go, ooh, that's of concern. Now, 
As I said yesterday, this is Thanksgiving week, so I'm going to be thankful for things. I'm an optimist, Alan. You know this. We've done radio. On the, I'm, a, I'm an yeah. optimist, right? So I here's here's that. my optimistic viewpoint, and then I want you to, in high school debate class fashion, tell me why I'm wrong <laughs> or right, okay? It's good news for Purdue that they can win games at this point and find out how to do it without contribution from Fletcher Lawyer because he got out to a great start a year ago, and then when the freshman wall kind of hit, I think they were kind of left wondering where they pick up those pieces that he'd left behind. So to have guys like Jones or Colvin that can pick up scoring slack on the wings when Lawyer has an off night, it is good for Purdue to see that and learn that now as opposed to having to deal with the shock of it later in the year. Your thoughts? Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And, and again, Fletcher Lawyer is a good basketball player. He's not – he played played relatively well in the first three games, uh, shot the ball well. I, and if there's more to it, I think, Jake, than just him shooting the ball well and what he contributes. But he's got to make shots. And if he doesn't, I think the difference for Purdue this year a little bit more or definitely more than last year is, yeah, Miles Colvin is going to be in the lineup. And he's going to play, and uh, and uh, they don't. And, and you're going to find Lance Jones, even though Lance Jones is already starting playing more. So, Matt Painter's got a lot of options. Uh, Fletcher Lawyer, to, you know, they, as Matt Painter always says, guys don't try to miss shots uh, uh, intentionally. But yeah, he needs to make shots, and he knows that. Uh, he is a guy that uh, no question last year, especially the last half of the Big Ten season, really struggled. And when you go back to what Purdue's demise was last year in the tournament, uh, you can call a lot of things, but when you can't make three-point shots, five for 26, uh, it's going to hurt you. And uh, Purdue made enough of them yesterday in the second half and still also, really, you know, Zach Eady, it's almost hilarious to say this, but Zach Eady had a, had a relatively average performance shooting the basketball last night. Um, and yet Purdue would still be able to beat one of the best uh, programs in the country by double digits. It's nice to say that he had an average shooting performance, Alan, <laughs> when, he, when he shot 50%, 8 of 16. But has, has he gotten better, I mean, is, if that's even possible? Talk about his start to the season because, of course, there was a lot talked about with him coming back and what NIL would need to do or if he went to the NBA draft. But has has he continued to improve? Is that even possible? You know, that's a good question. I think teams know how to defend him or, or know how to try to defend him. And certainly Gonzaga did some of that yesterday in the first half, uh, pushing him out. And, and, you know, you go back to the tournament well, this year or last year at this time, and he was absolutely dominant. He still is. Is he better? I, I don't know. He hasn't shot the ball as well as you call that shooting. He hasn't made as many close-in shots for a number of reasons. Uh, again, 8 of 16 when he could have easily and self-admitted. He's very hard on himself. He, he mentioned post-game last night. You know, man, I should have been 12 of 13 out of 16. Well, then you then then could say he's definitely gotten better. I think he is better because he's, a, he's actually a leader. Uh, I think Purdue has also better because they played well without him last night. Trey Kaufman-Wren, who did struggle in the first half, aired a couple threes or aired one three early in the game, came in and hit three. Uh, I think it was two or three shots in the lane when Edie was out, when Purdue really was able to get the lead to where it wanted. That's the difference. And I don't know that he's going to be able to beat last year's numbers. I think if you're Purdue, you're maybe not even sure you'll want him to. You need to have that flexibility 
to, to make sure you get other guys on the court a little bit. Now, ADL played over 30 minutes yesterday, and he'll continue to do that. Matt Painter's not stupid, but uh, this is a this is a guy that uh, is continuing to deliver. That guy being Edie, and whether he'll be you know whether he'll become the what the first back to back national player of the year since Ralph Sampson. I, I would if I had to bet, and I don't. But if I did, probably not. But uh, it's just because things tend to work that way. But uh, then again, he may have just as effective a season uh, as he did last year, just in a slightly different way. Alan Carpet Golden Black is our guest, Alan. With Zach Eady's dominance, you know, there's no reason to think that he is going to have a game where he's off. But let's say, for example, if he if he were to foul out of the game, or maybe it, even if let's say he rolls an ankle and has to miss a game in the Big Ten yeah. season, uh, does Purdue have a defined cast system aside from him? In other words, if he is not their go-to guy, it's late in the game and he's not on the floor. Do you think they have a very clear understanding amongst one another of who then becomes the guy that everything runs through? That's a good question. Um, I think that uh, you know, I think Trey Kaufman Wren and his ability to do things around the basket and be effective around the basket. If you're looking for a relatively uh, easy shot, uh, not that those shots in the lane are easy for him, but he's good at it. He might be that guy, but you know, I, I think that's the thing that's interesting about Lance Jones. You need guys in 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 college basketball, especially. Uh, that just play without fear. And I'm not saying Purdue. Purdue played with a little bit of inexperience last year in the tournament. That caused them issues, obviously, and maybe caused them to pucker a little bit as a Gene Cady term. But uh, that is, you know, you need guys like that, uh, like Lance Jones. It just seems to put it into another degree and go another another degree up and plays, or another gear, I should say. And I think that uh, that can really help you. So, I think it's it's hard to plan when you have a seven four guy that is so dominant and is and plays so differently than anybody in college basketball. Uh, it's probably hard to have a complete uh, a retrofitted uh, plan B. But I think you've got some weapons that you can do some things differently uh, than you than you do when Edie's on the court. I think Purdue does have some options in a situation. Purdue won't win the national championship this year or get to the Final Four. Uh, if Zach Eady doesn't play, I think that's pretty clear. But I, I think this is a team that can be very, very competitive without him. Alan Karpik is with us. Alan, pardon my ignorance here, but it, the question, of course, comes up, and you mentioned at the start of this interview that Purdue has struggled in the NCAA tournament. There's no question about that. But just what do the Boilermakers have to do to take these early season starts? And be it's, it's November, teams grow. But what do they have to do to bring this same kind of intensity, beating Gonzaga by 10? or more in back-to-back years and take that to early on in the NCAA tournament? I think you just forget about whatever's happened in the past. And, and, and it's a different, you know, these, yeah, as they always say, and I'll use another Gene Cady reference, and that is that these kids don't don't remember what they did last week, let alone now. I'm, I know that the, the tournament weighs heavily on, on, on guys on this team, but uh, I just think you focus on what you have now it is a different team. There are three key players that are different than last year when we've talked about uh, uh, certainly uh, Lance, Lance Jones, but also uh, Camden Heidi and Colvin. So this, these are, this is a different team with a little bit different feel to them. I, I just think you've got to keep playing. And, and yes, you ultimately, for any team in the NCAA tournament, you got to make shots. You know, you can't do what Purdue did against Fairleigh Dickinson where you're five for 26. And the three of us, 
the two of you in your broadcast position, and myself and Wes Lafayette, might have been able to hit more shots than Purdue did in that game. Maybe damning us with faint praise. But my point is, you just got to play, and I think that's what uh, Matt Painter said. Just focus on what you can focus on, what you can focus on. Enjoy the ride. The crowds have been unbelievable for Purdue so far in Mackey Arena. Tickets are going for thousands of dollars in the lower arena. It's crazy, and uh, this is a very special team, and 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 it is poised to have a very special year. Alan, which player, if any? so far is showing still the biggest learning curve and adapting to their newest role? That's a good question, but I probably would say Miles Colvin, and only because he he is instant offense. He's learned, uh, you know, he we know he can do that, and he does it well. Uh, we've already seen it in the last two games where when he hit three threes against Xavier and had a couple yesterday that were absolutely daggers. And he doesn't seem to have much of a conscience doing it. He just does it. But he's got to learn to do some things defensively. I think he's doing better in that situation. Uh, but I think that's uh, there's a definite learning curve for him. Uh, I think Lance Jones is good as he, again, kicks it into high gear and, and motorboats his way down the, down the court as fast as any Purdue player I think I've seen since Lewis Jackson in a lot of ways, and he's a lot bigger than Lewis Jackson was. Um, I, I think that, that he's got to also learn, and that just comes a function of playing a shot selection at the right time. He likes to jack up the threes, as Matt Painter says, from Crawfordsville sometimes, and uh, that he, he made them. He made a big one yesterday when Purdue was struggling, but uh, – my point is uh, that those are guys that just still have to learn the system and, and do it. I think Heidi is a guy that's uh, really talented and, and has got, you know, got a good dunk last night on a back cut. Uh, he is a guy that can really help you, uh, and I think he's uh, a guy that we're gonna, you're going to see more of than less down, down the road. But uh, he comes in pretty, pretty mature and ready to go, uh, seems to be relatively seasoned. And his role is – fundamentally different than a Colvin and a, and a Jones. So in fairness to Colvin and Jones, they have, they have more to learn. Boilers 4-0, Tennessee tonight, 8 o'clock, goldenblack.com, where you can read about all of it all season long with Alan Karpik and the gang. Alan, appreciate it. Have a happy Thanksgiving, all right? Yeah, same to you guys. Thanks so much for having me on. Appreciate Thanks, it. Alan Karpik on the hotline. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. Be nice to be hot blooded right now. I guess we are all hot blooded, are we not? Aren't we warm blooded? Isn't that right? That's what I learned in seventh grade. Yeah, if we were cold blooded, this wouldn't bother us outside, right? The fact we're hot blooded is what makes it cold outside, right? Isn't I that right? So. Yeah. You got an update on the stairs, by the way? Now, let's see here. Hang on. I'm looking outside at the Monument Circle where you're 48 hours from the Circle of Lights. Hang on. Um, yeah, complete foobar. <laughs> I see like the I crane said, still. The, that the can't only, be good. The only two people right now preparing for the circle of lights based on the condition of the steps outside are Stanley Kahn and Ken Nunn. <laughs> uh, joining us now in the program, and I'm sure thrilled to be doing so with that intro, uh, he is the dean of college basketball writing, of course, Mike DeCourcy, joining us on the show. Mike, I had given the guys here a, a college basketball trivia question and uh, with the fabulous yet to be named prize on the line and i told him they could uh-huh. phone a friend and that you could be that friend are you up for the challenge here uh i'll give it my best 
But, uh, you know, they, my, every week uh, my uh, staff, our staff, uh, our college staff at the Sporting News picks three upset games. We have to pick three teams that are underdogs to win. And whoever wins, whoever gets one right, gets as many points as their underdog spot. So if you pick a two-touchdown underdog, you win the 14 points. I like that. And, and every week, I'm like, dang, I missed that one by a field goal, or my team just missed an extra point. And my wife says, what do you get if you win this again? And she's right. I, go, I don't get anything. So he's <laughs> on the line here. By the way, that staff, of course, for Mike DeCourcy could be at sportingnews.com or also his work with the Big Ten Network. So a number of places where you can see his expertise. Okay, here's the question, Mike. Since the Wooden Award began in 1977, Ralph Sampson is the only player to win in back-to-back years. Okay. But right. there are two universities who have had back-to-back years where they presented the winner Ooh. with two different players from each school, respectively. So, in other words, okay. there are two schools that can say, in back-to-back years, we had a Wooden Award winner. It just happened to be a different player in each of the two years. Two schools can make that claim. What two schools are they? All right. I'm going to go with UCLA, okay. uh, Sydney Wicks, uh, and Bill Walton. Keep in mind, it began in 77, the Wooden oh, Award. See, oh, okay. I was thinking of a real Player of the Year trophy uh, and not the not the Wooden Award, which is the least of all of them, by the way. Uh, I, we can get into that later as to why. But, uh, okay, so if that's not the case, if we're going later than that, um, wow, that is hard. Uh, I'm going to punt. I got, I okay. got nothing. Eddie, you were correct with Duke University. And Duke University's two players were Shane Battier and Jason Williams. See, Shane I would Williams. have thought it would have been Reddick and then ah, somebody else. Okay. The other, and it includes a guy that was a fabulous college basketball player that I think kind of gets lost in the shuffle in terms of people remembering because there were so many great players of the era. Chris Mullen won it in 85, and then a year later, the truth, Walter Berry was the mm, winner for St. John's. And a lot of people forget, I think, about Walter Berry. St. John's. Um, I said Houston, Mike. I thought that was a pretty good guess. Yeah, Drexler and Elijah yeah. one would have been very suitable guesses, yeah. right? Yeah, so Patrick Ewing was playing then, and so it was hard. Uh, yeah, I, I didn't think Walter Berry should have gotten an 86. Uh, I, that was a, that was an odd choice for me. He was a terrific player, but that was an odd choice. I would have thought Johnny Dawkins or Manning, even though, even though Danny Manning was only a sophomore at the time, Manning would have been a suitable answer. Purvis Ellison would have been a good one, even though he was a young player in 86. So there were a lot of great players then. Great era, for sure, right? Um, Mike, first off, before we get to college basketball, your thoughts on your Pittsburgh Steelers changing offensive coordinators? Yeah, it, you know, what I, what I, my first thought was that they chose continuity over competence and they paid the price. Uh, Kenny Pickett coming off his rookie year, uh, they had some progress as a team late in the year, uh, but it was pretty obvious. Look, Matt Canada never was qualified to be an NFL offensive coordinator. He was, in, in a dozen years, as a college offensive coordinator, there's 130 Division I teams, his average scoring offense out of 130-some so, teams, 57th. How does that get you an NFL coordinator job? How? Like, how? How, how does that even happen? And so, it's like saying, hey, Mike. We're going to put you on the NBC Nightly News. Lester Holt's gone. It's all you. Like, I'm not qualified. 
Oh, you probably are, right? Don't you think you do? No. You'd, you'd be okay. I'm a professional communicator. I can, I, 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 but I'm not. I am not a news anchor. And and he is a he is a uh, he is a professional football coach. He is a football coach, but he is not one of the 32 most qualified people on the planet to do that job. And they hired him anyway. And so this is the result you get. And when you double down by allowing him to do it for two consecutive years without producing a single game. This is true. A single game of 400 yards or more, not one. And then he added another, what, 10 now, uh, six and four. Yeah, so he's gone something like 44 games as an NFL coordinator without ever producing a 400-yard game. Every single team in the league, every other one, 31 teams, have done that at least three times in the period he's been an offensive coordinator. But do you have opinion about – no, I'm just kidding. Um, (laughs) Mike, of course, he's our guest. And I love the passion for the Pittsburgh Steelers. I grew up a huge Steelers fan, by the way. Mike, speaking of continuity, kind of segues nicely to my question here, which would be this. In college basketball today, where obviously you have a lot of turnover in terms of transfers and rosters, which team so far this year is the one that is – rolling along because they have the most continuity of roster from a year ago. Well, I think that Purdue has the most continuity of roster. Uh, and that, and that, I think that started to pay off in the second half last night. I, I will tell you guys that I went to the Xavier game and it felt to me like a team that kept looking at the calendar and saying, if we can win this game, and we'll probably win it anyway. We could play brilliantly tonight, but what's it going to matter? It's all going to come down to what we do in March. That's what I felt uh, being there. And I'm not saying they don't care or anything or didn't care, but I just felt like that they were looking at the calendar while they were playing. And that's not that, they can't do that. Now, this Maui Invitational is perfect antidote for that because if they do that, I mean, whether they, whether they, however, whatever the approach is, they're getting hit in the head with a sledgehammer three times in three days because there's no, there's no escape from the opposition. Because they beat Gonzaga, uh, they've got Tennessee today. Regardless of what they do today, they'll have either Kansas or Marquette. So this is perfect. They can't think about that now. They have to, in order to perform and not. Be, uh, not not come home from Hawaii for Thanksgiving uh, with a couple of big giant L's around their uh, necks. They'll they they have to perform, and they and and even if they lose, they can win because they can get better out there. And so I think that that's I think that's been perfect for them to have to play in this tournament in this field, the strongest deepest field relative to the season uh, that we've ever seen in a multi-team tournament. It's, it's, it's an outstanding field, and this, this, is, this is a great experience for them. I think Matt's doing an amazing job of, of mixing Colvin into the lineup, into the rotation, putting him into key minutes late in the game against Gonzaga, late in the game against Xavier, uh, putting him under pressure so that he can grow from it. Because I think eventually his development will be the key to this team being able to do more in March than it has in the past. Mike, just talking in general of Feast Week and these Thanksgiving Week tournaments, or even this time of year, how much do you take away from a team's performance, whether that's good or bad, considering how much things can change come March? Well, I think what you do is you want to see teams continue to evolve and develop. And you can, like I said, you can play in a game 
and and lose it and grow if you if you learn from that from that game and you grow from it or you you can take a loss and and perform badly and lose confidence and lose uh, connection among the team and that's the key to this time of year is okay we weren't good enough tonight uh, win or lose like Kentucky last night having to go into overtime there that, that's not good enough but uh, it, it you have to look at that and say okay how do we get better and so these games matter because when you come down to the selections and I do the brackets for Fox uh, starting in late December, right before Christmas, uh, we'll, we'll put some brackets up. And you, those, those games all matter uh, to, to whether or not you get in or whether or not you get a high seed. Uh, those games really matter, but they don't define your season. What defines your season is do you win your league? Do you finish high? Do you advance in the tournament? Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Mike, when you look at, at Purdue, and we'll get to Indiana here in a second, Mike DeCourcy is our guest from Sporting News and, of course, Big Ten Network. Uh, look, Zach Eady is a wonderful player. I, I, I mean, there's you have a huge advantage when you take to the floor with Zach Eady. Um and we were talking about this with Alan Karpik. I want your your thought on it. I'm not going to say is Purdue too reliant on Zach Eady, but has Matt Painter done a nice job of kind of working a roster around Eady that would be sufficient in the event that Eady would be unavailable late in a game? Do they have the proper chain of command on the floor of knowing where then the ball goes and who becomes ball dominant if Eady is not able to be on the floor? Yeah, I think the problem, honestly, Jake, is when Zach's not out there, I think it's more on the defensive end. I think they have answers offensively of, of what they can do if if, Zach, if Zach's not there. It changes them, certainly. Uh, but you can post up Trey Kaufman-Wren, and there were, there were periods last night. I was really encouraged by Trey's performance last night, uh, really encouraged. Uh, because I, when I saw him against uh, Xavier, I mean, it just there was nothing happening. And I was worried that he would not be a factor at all. And he was really energetic and really dynamic against Gonzaga and really involved and a huge difference in the second half. So you can do that now. You know you can throw the ball inside to him and you can play off of him. It's not the same as Zach, but he can handle it and he can make things happen with his ability to bounce the ball in the post. So I think you have lots of different answers on offense. The problem is on defense. You don't have anybody else that's going to uh, discourage opposing shooters from attacking the rim. It's not there. Uh, Trey's not that tall. Uh, Caleb's first is not that tall. So it changes you significantly. You need Zach in the game late uh, in order to be able to assure that opposing teams can't hit you off the bounce. And, and really hurt your defense that way. In terms of Indiana, moving to the other Big Ten team in the state here, obviously, Mike, Mike DeCourcy, our guest, um, you know that when you have new familiar faces or uh, new unfamiliar faces like Indiana does, that there is going to be some time to find cohesiveness. At what point in the season, if Indiana is still kind of feeling out what they have roster-wise, would you begin to panic over it? In other words, when does that excuse of, hey, they've got some new faces they're getting familiar with, that starts to go away when? Well, see, I'm not sure that I would look at it as a panic situation. I think you have to look at it now and think, 
well, there's some stuff missing here, and can we can we find a way to get around it? What do you think's missing for them? That shooters. Um, they don't have anybody who's making shots except Xavier Johnson, their point guard. Uh, Khalil Ware is excuse me, Khalil Ware is is doing a pretty good job for a seven foot center making jump shots, but you don't want to you, you don't want that to be what your first option is for a three point shot. You want you want Khalil Ware to be able to throw it out to somebody, and that because he's getting triple teamed, and that player be open and make a three. But right now, no one's doing that, and that's a problem in in modern basketball. It's hard to win against Big Ten level competition. And that, when I say Big Ten level, I mean like the high majors you're playing, whether it's uh, Louisville, UConn, or some of the other teams on the schedule, or the league itself. That level of competition, it, it's going to help you to make some threes. And right now, no one's doing that. Uh, and Mackenzie Ambaco is one of 13 from three-point range. Trey Galloway is three of 14 at this point. I, I think they need to get Trey more stationary shots. Uh, a lot of his shots are off the bounce. I think they need to get him more stationary to see if, if he is, can he drop those shots. Uh, he, he's not getting enough easy opportunities from three. A lot of it's on the move. And, look, Steph Curry can shoot it anyway. Uh, on the move, standing on his head, whatever. But if you've got an offense that and, and, and a squad that's struggling to make deep shots, you want to take the guys who maybe have a chance to make those shots and, and get them the easiest three-point shots possible. I don't think we've seen that so far from, from Indiana. Mike, I was going to ask you about IU's three-point shooting, but just to the level of what you have coming up, Maryland and Michigan for your first couple Big Ten games, but then you get Auburn and Kansas back-to-back. So how concerning is the three-point shooting when you add on the upcoming schedule because you're not really going to get a quote-unquote break until you see Moorhead, North Alabama, and Kennesaw State at the end of December? Right, yeah. I think they have a game against Harvard this weekend, too, uh, that actually will be a challenge. I mean, they'll have to play well in it, as as was the case, say, against Wright State. Uh, Harvard's probably even a little better than Wright State, so they're going to have to play well in that game. But it's it's, go, it's going to be hard to win against that. It's going to be hard to win against Kansas, and the number one team in the country. Uh, so it, it, and you're you're getting Maryland at home. Maryland's really struggling to score right now, uh, and you want to make sure if you're Indiana that you continue that struggle. Michigan's played pretty well right now. They've got some tough games coming up, starting with Memphis in uh, the Bahamas in the battle for Atlantis. We'll see what kind of condition they're in when they get back from, from uh, Nassau. But I, I think it's a challenge without a doubt. And, and it's really hard to win, like I said, at that level, against that level of opposition, if you're not making three-point shots. That's why the Louisville game was as difficult as it was. Uh, they, 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 they struggled for a period of time to stop Louisville it, with their ability to hit the the uh, hit the lane off the bounce a little bit, uh, uh, the young man Clark had a really nice second half and helped bring excuse me Louisville back into the game. But in the end, the real problem was that you're not you're not dropping enough shots to stretch it out. You're one of eleven from three point range, uh, even at five of nineteen. Louisville outscores you by almost ten points from from deep. Mike, just out of curiosity, Mike DeCourcy, our guest, SportingNews.com, Big Ten Network, amongst other places. Um, when I began talking about the Wooden Award and, and you were saying 
it's the secondary. I mean, I'm not disagreeing with you by any stretch. Your sentiments on why the Wooden Award would be like a secondary award is what? They have what they have this academic thing where if you don't have a 2.0 grade average, they won't give you the trophy. So I don't know if you take organic chemistry that semester and look at like so many other pre-med students do. I'm using the most extreme example. No, I get it. Uh, you might not have the 2.0 and they won't give you the trophy and, and they'll publicly embarrass you by not having you by making it clear that you're not eligible. It's garbage. If you can play and you're the best player, you should get the award. And it's only come up about three or four times in the last 20 years, but it's embar- it's embarrassed the people that, that it happened to. It's totally unnecessary. Uh, and so as a result, I don't even consider it a major award. I, don't even, I never mention it in print. The, to me, the major awards, the Naismith is a great one. Uh, the AP award is a great award. It has a big voting body, but not too big, 65, 66 people, something like that. Uh, obviously, I can I, I put a lot of stock in the Sporting News one, but uh, you know those are those are all trophies uh, that I consider more important because of that. I, I don't appreciate the the embarrassment that has been uh, that has been put upon young people who are just trying to do what they do. They're trying to play ball, and you know maybe they maybe they uh, let their took their eye off of the academic deal for a little bit, but like like you're not flunking out of school because you got less than a C average. Uh, they're le- you're, you're, you're probably still getting a chance to go back the next term. Mike, you began covering college basketball in what year? Uh, 1987-88. Okay. In that time frame to now, and I automatically have one in mind here, in that time period, the single most dominant college basketball season that you have seen was turned in by what player? Uh, the most dominant college basketball season since 1987-88. Uh, I'm gonna say I'm gonna say probably Leitner in '92. That's pretty uh, good. That that you know they 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 were dominant. They were tremendous, absolutely. But there are some really good ones as well. Uh, Jameer Nelson's 2004 season was amazing. Uh, it was for a smaller player to do what he did that year. Uh, Jalen Brunson's 2018 season, mm-hmm. one of the better seasons I've seen from a guard. Uh, so th- th- there, there have been some phenomenal seasons. Who's your guy? Honestly, I, well, there are a couple. To be honest with you, from a statistical standpoint and carrying game standpoint, Adam Morrison had a great year. Um, but the guy that I thought had the most dominant season that I've seen, and I don't pretend to have seen it as intimately as you, but Glenn Robinson's 1994 year to me was un- unbelievable. Yeah, the the only problem was that he didn't get to the promised land. No, I get it, and, and I remember this. We we we. I was in Knoxville, uh, and after what he did to Kansas, and we were standing there. I think Pat Forty was there, and and we were just having a conversation in the press room, thinking like, who can stop this guy? I know, I mean, like no one. Uh, his back. And, that was the only thing that could stop him was his back injury. Well, and that that certainly had a big part in it, and I think also uh, Grant Hill. Uh, Coach K, at, at halftime of their game against Marquette, Coach K got after Grant Hill because they were getting they were getting beaten by Marquette in the Sweet 16, which was a very good uh, – I think they were in – at that point, I think that was the Great Midwest. And they were a very good Great Midwest team, but they, they, didn't, have, uh, they didn't have Grant Hill on their team. Uh, Coach K got into Grant, you know, uh, and Grant woke up and dominated the second half and then did a really nice job against – uh, an impaired Glenn in that uh, in that regional Mike, final. But I'll uh, tell you another guy, and it wasn't for a whole season. 
But in that time period you're talking, in terms of a guy just basically catching fire and putting a team on his back, Glenn Rice in 89 at the second in the last third of the season comes to mind as well. Yeah, and, and, and I was there in Lexington when they came in to play Carolina, and it wasn't expected for them to advance beyond that game. And Glenn just said, oh, yeah, watch me. I'm, I'm doing it myself. Uh, and he had very, very good teammates, but it was – they were all riding him at that point in the season. He was just phenomenal in that game and then uh, and then carrying him into the Final Four with an easy victory against Virginia and then the, the two great games uh, in uh, in Seattle with, uh, with uh, Illinois. My buddy Steve Bardo doesn't like to think about that game at all uh, or, the, uh, or the game against Seton Hall and the phantom foul call uh, that put uh, Rumiel Robinson at the line. The phantom call. I think that was... I want to say the final of that game was 80-78, but that was in Seattle, the final four that year, right, in 89? It was, 1989. That, it was the last final four game. The last final four I have not been at. It was the only one since uh, 86. That I, I, I didn't go in 86. I didn't get to go in 89. It's the last one that, uh, that hopefully for a long time yeah, the, that I don't that I don't get to be at. Yeah, the Sean Higgins put back that put him up over Illinois into the finals, and then Seton Hall had beaten Duke, and I still was basically sitting around with a Seton Hall voodoo doll because Jay Edwards was my favorite player, and Andrew Gaze dropped like thirty five on Indiana in the regionals that year, and it, like two and a half weeks later, I got up off my parents' bedroom floor. It was just awful, <laughs> awful. <laughs> 50, so Mike, Mike, I know this will stun you. Sixteen year old. Jake Query did not handle losses well. <laughs> and I didn't even gamble for crying out loud. All right, Steelers Bengals, the 40-point explosion happens this weekend for the Pittsburgh Steelers. Mike DeCourcy will be watching that and then of course covering college basketball where you can read him at Sporting News and watch him on Big Ten Network and hear him occasionally on this show where he raises the intellect standard to a whole new level. Mike, appreciate it as always. Happy Thanksgiving to you. Happy Thanksgiving to you, Jake, and all my neighbors in Indianapolis. Uh, we'll talk again soon. Sounds good. Mike DeCourcy on the hotline. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Uh, Stephen Holder joins us now, who I'm sure... He is absolutely slammed, so he's got a couple of minutes. We appreciate it. Stephen, let's get right to this right away, and that is, from your understanding, what did go into uh, what seems to be, obviously, you know, was this a long, growing process, or was it one thing where they simply called him in, they sat down, they couldn't come to some sort of an agreement on where they were? What led to the release of Shaquille Leonard? So every indication I have is that this is just a pure football decision. And it has nothing, from what I'm told, nothing to do with his his outspokenness, you know, which, you know, we've talked a lot about in recent weeks. So we do have to at least wonder. Uh, so it's not about that. Uh, it wasn't about, um, I mean, it is about money to some extent, but, but that's really not the, the, the foremost issue here. Uh, this really, in the Colts' estimation, was about a guy who at this point cannot um, he's just not they, – they have better options, to be completely honest. They have better options at that position right now. I'm still shocked that they did it now, and I, and I don't know that they had to do it now. But um, maybe – I will say this. No one told me this, but I think if you look at Shaq's performance 
in that last game, uh, it was a setback for him. Okay, I thought that was his worst game of the season, and and on the heels of that, his playing time was not going to increase. If anything, it was going to decrease. So, I do wonder if on the heels of that and knowing what that meant for his playing time moving forward, if this was something they, they felt they had to do, because it, it might have gotten thornier, you know, to, to have to reduce his playing time even further. And how would that exacerbate the situation? So those are sort of the, the details that I can't speak to because they're, they're sort of hypotheticals, but, but, but I have to imagine all of that was considered. Okay. Steven, in your opinion, the decline of Shaquille Leonard in the last year is most based upon A, change of scheme, B, lack of health, or C, suddenly he started to show himself as the more pedestrian linebacker that he really is, and he had a couple of years there when 100% healthy where he played even beyond himself, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think it's it's definitely number two. It's It's the health. I mean – there can be some role of those other things you mentioned. Um, I mean, like the scheme change. And I, I, I've talked about this recently. I, I think it hurt him. I do think the scheme change hurt him. However, there are moments when, when he's in the open field and there's a play to be made, that isn't about scheme. That's, that's where he's at his best, right? When he is unblocked in the open field, there's the ball, go get the ball. That is Shaquille Leonard. That is what he made All-Pro three times, first-team All-Pro. He, he made it three times doing that. And, and he can't do it in the same fashion now. It, it brings me no joy to say that. Like, I felt really lucky to, to be able to see the, um, the emergence of Shaq Leonard. You know, I, I felt like I, I saw it his second game. Like, we can go back to that Washington game in, in 2018, I believe week two. And we saw, it. I think, 19 tackles that day. And you, you walked away saying to yourself, oh, my God, how did they find this guy? You know, but but health is everything in the NFL. And add this to the long list and the long pile of players we've seen uh, thrown to the wayside, to be completely honest, you know, who were never the same after a particular injury. It's it's tragic. It's sad. It's all of those things. But but it's a really harsh reality of this game. Do you believe, Stephen Holder, that Shaquille Leonard will play another snap in the NFL this season? Hmm. Uh, I, I bet somebody gives him a shot. I, I think that he, he will want to, for sure. Uh, that is unquestionable, in my opinion, knowing him. I mean, he's not going to go home and put his feet up. Okay, that ain't, that ain't him. Now, what that role will be, how much money they pay him, all of those things, I don't know. Now, I will say there's not much there's not a ton of money left on on the the cap for this year. I mean, I'd have to do the math, but the Colts have paid uh more than half of the money he's owed this year. It's still a significant amount of money. I think we're talking maybe six, 6 million dollars. 63 and a half is what he would have been owed if he had stayed with them, right? Well, um, I mean just this year. Right, this, right. This I'm talking about yeah, in the next 3 years. Now, question yeah. becomes, Stephen, um and then we'll let you go here, but if 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 Shaquille Leonard, so two two scenarios here, okay? Yeah. Scenario one is, and we'll just throw a team out there. Uh, the Brandon, throw me a team off the top of your head. Chicago, Eagles. Chicago Eagles. Bears. Okay, the Eagles. Okay, so the Eagles sign him. Okay, the Eagles yeah. pick him up off waivers. 
If that is the case, that means what for the Colts financially moving forward? And if no one signs him, it means what for the Colts moving forward financially? Okay, so if he if someone picks up the contract, so there's 24 hours. You got if you're cut today, generally depending on when the transaction happens, you got 24 hours to make a waiver claim. If you do that, you assume the remainder of that contract. Now, it won't be a, it won't be that bad for the for the team that is acquiring him because they didn't pay the signing bonus. The Colts are still required uh, to to absorb all of the ramifications of the signing bonus they paid him. So all of the money they've paid him already, there's going to be dead money accordingly and so forth. Uh, and the majority of that, I guess for the Colts, the ramification there would be, uh, they would, they're going to save a significant amount of money next year either way. They're going to save $16 million at least. And I guess I'd have to figure out well, how, what it would mean for the, for the other team. But – but it would mean they would have to pay his base salaries, which are pretty high in the coming three years. And that's if and one, that's one if he signs point. or does not sign. That that's if he no no that's if he is claimed off waivers. Now, if the contract if he's not claimed off waivers, then this contract goes bye bye, and we never talk about it again. It's over, and then all of the all of the uh, uh, amateurized. I think that's how you pronounce that word. <laughs> Amateurized money the Colts have paid him. The salary, the salary, excuse me, the the signing bonus gets spread out over the life of the contract. Except now they're cutting him three years early, so all of that accelerates and it hits your cap um, over the course of. So, this so if you are the Colts bean counter, you are yeah. hoping that he does or does not get claimed. Um. If he gets claimed, it's probably uh, it's probably slightly helpful, but not as much as you'd think. Here's the thing, Stephen. We were going to talk all day tomorrow about some of the comments Jim Irsay said to HBO tonight, and that no, just completely went out the window, right? No, this is crazy. It's brilliant, I, 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 I isn't it? I tell you, it, it's it's really shocking. I'm I'm really shocked. Um, look, it was bad, right? The situation wasn't great. I get it, and 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 I will tell you. I, my antenna was up that that he was maybe going to get benched, and or at least his playing time would be reduced. Uh, I tweeted this already, but I'll just repeat it here. Um, I had a source tell me last week because I, I I realized you know this was a bad situation, and I'm like, okay, th- this can't keep going like this. Like he's not playing well, he's complaining. Like how are you guys going to handle this? And I asked a source over there last week, and. <laughs> The response was, among other things, I won't, I'll spare you the other stuff, but one part of this response got my attention. We will do what is best for the team at the end of the day. I thought that meant we would, like, sit him. I did not ever consider that meant we're going to cut him, like, next week. <laughs> I'm shocked. I'm really shocked. Steven, I appreciate it. I know it's a busy day. I know you got a busy day in front of you as well. Happy Thanksgiving to you as well, all right? All right, same guys. All right, Stephen Holder from ESPN.com.